in July of this year, a guy called Andrew Malkinson was finally cleared his name. In 2004, he was found guilty of a horrendous attack on a woman in Manchester. He was sent to jail and he spent the next 17 years behind bars. But Malkinson knew that he was innocent of that crime. And so he fought tirelessly to prove that. He even refused the opportunity to be released early because in order to do that, he would need to admit the offence. Finally this year, the appeal court declared that it was a grave miscarriage of justice. The case hadn't been dealt with properly. Evidence that proved his innocence had been withheld. And new forensic evidence proved that he was not the attacker. Outside the court, when this, this, uh, this uh, appeal was accepted, Malkinson declared this. I came to the police station in 2003 and told the officers I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I came to the Crown Court in Manchester in 2004 and told the jury I was innocent. They didn't believe me. I came to the appeal court in 2006 and told them that I was innocent. They didn't believe me. Today we told this, this court I was innocent and finally they listened. But I have been innocent all along for each of these 20 years that came before today. I think Job would have understood this man's desperate attempt to prove his innocence. When Job suffered unfairly, he repeatedly tried to vindicate himself. Not just before his accusing friends, but even more importantly, before God. But finally he realised he needed someone else to clear his name. So we're going to read Job chapter 9 this morning. Uh, we're going to be looking at the whole chapter, but we're just going to read the first 14 verses at the start, and Tony's going to come up, and he's going to read for us. Thanks, Tony. Indeed, then Job replied, Indeed, I know that this is true, but how can a mortal be righteous before God? Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. His wisdom is profound, his power is vast. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed? He moves mountains without their knowing it, and overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth from its place and makes its pillars tremble. He speaks to the sun, and it does not shine. He seals off the light of the stars. He alone stretches out the heavens and treads on the waves of the sea. He is the maker of the bear and the Orion, the Pleiades and the constellations of the south. He performs wonders that cannot be fathomed, miracles that cannot be counted. When he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. If he snatches away, who can stop him? Who can say to him, what are you, what are you doing? God does not restrain his anger. Even the cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. How then can I dispute with him? How can I find words to argue with him? Thanks, Tony. 
As we saw last week, Job had been wrongly accused by his friends. They rightly believed that God was sovereign over this world. And they rightly believed that God is completely just and fair. But they wrongly assumed then that 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 should mean that everything that happens in this world should reflect that reality. That God will always, in this life, reward virtue and punish vice. And so they were thinking, if good people are blessed and wicked people suffer, then that meant that Job must be really wicked because Job was really suffering. So they wrongly accused Job. And they even proposed a quick and easy solution to Job's predicament. Like what happened to that guy Malkinson, his friends promised a shorter sentence if he just admit he was wrong. They said this in chapter 11, If you put away the sin that is in your hand and allow no evil to dwell in your tent, then you will lift up your face without shame. You will stand firm and without fear. Just own up. Admit your guilt. Turn from your evil ways. And everything will be good again. You'll be able to go back to that blessed, prosperous and happy life. That's what Job's friends said. But the only problem was, they were wrong. As is the prosperity gospel today that says something very similar. In this world, good people do suffer. In this world, God's people suffer. Job had not been hiding secret sin in his life. He was blameless and upright, a man who fears God and shuns evil. Job was actually suffering as an innocent person. And Job knew that. And so throughout his speeches, he rejected the accusation of his friends and he defended himself. For example, in Job chapter 27, he says this, I will never admit that you are right. Till I die, I will not deny my integrity. He stood for the reality of his innocence before God. And I think that's really important for us too. If we want to move forward in our lives, we need to push into the truth. That means that when we're in the wrong, we need to admit that we're wrong. Admit our sin. Repent of it. Put our faith in Jesus. That's the only way for us to experience the forgiveness and freedom that that God alone can give. So if we're wrong, we need to admit it. But if we are in the right, then we need to stand our ground, even when we're wrongly accused. Even when people are against us, even when people throw all kinds of accusations against us, 
We need to stand in the truth. Not just bow and accept what they're saying just for an easier way out. This is what Jesus did. When he was falsely accused, he did not accept that false guilt. When they hurled their insults at him, Peter says in 1 Peter 2, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus stood his ground. He did not accept the false accusations of those evil and wicked men around him. But he didn't need to feel, he didn't feel that he had to fight back. Instead, he just entrusted himself to his Father. Knowing that God would vindicate him, God would declare him innocent in his perfect timing. And we can do the same. Wherever that false accusation comes against us, we can do the same. We can stand our ground. We can hold on to the truth of who we are. And we can trust that God will reveal the truth in His perfect timing. But that's where Job struggled. Because Job didn't only feel convicted, wrongly convicted by his friends, he also felt wrongly convicted by God. In the previous chapter, chapter 8, Bildad, one of Job's friends, he just asserted that God is absolutely just and fair in dealing with people in this world. So he says this, Surely God does not reject a blameless man or strengthen the hands of evildoers. God doesn't go against people who are doing the right thing. God doesn't help those who are doing wicked things. That's what Bill that said. But Job, he was a blameless man. And as far as he could see, God had rejected him. He felt that he was being punished by God. He says in verse 29 of our chapter, I, am all, I already am found guilty. He felt like God had already declared that he was guilty and he was, being, he was suffering under that punishment. Because his family had been killed. His business had crumpled. His health had disintegrated. How could God say that was fair? How could God say that was just? Remember last week we read what Eliphaz had asked. Who being innocent has ever perished? Where were the upright ever destroyed? Eliphaz claimed that that was what he saw in this world. That's what he observed. But Job saw things completely differently. This is what he said about God in in verse 22 of our chapter. He destroys both the blameless and the wicked. From Job's perspective, bad things happen to both the good and the bad. And as he believed that God was sovereign over this world, who else could he hold responsible 
for all the suffering in this world. So if you look at verse 23, Job says this, When a scourge brings sudden death, he mocks the despair of the innocent. When a a land falls into the hands of the wicked, he blindfolds its judges. If it is not he, meaning God, then who is it? Now, I don't think Job wanted you to say this. But if Job was going to hold on to the reality that God is in control in this world, then he had to ask the question, why doesn't God do anything about this? Does God not care about all the suffering in this world? Job was struggling with that age-old problem. The problem that if God is all-powerful, and God is all-good, then why is there evil in this world? Why are there tsunamis and earthquakes? Why are there heart attacks and cancer and murder and rape and terrorism and war? If God is in control and God is love, why do we suffer so much? This has been an issue for centuries. Job was struggling with that and that goes way back to probably the earliest book of the Bible. Charles Darwin, I'm sure most people have heard about him, as the father of the theory of evolution. He believed that the suffering in this world was really strong evidence against the existence of God. Some people even think that the the tragic death of his own daughter when she was very young was actually the, the led him to walk away from his Christian faith. And this problem was still a, a major issue today. Uh, a Barna study in the US uh, a couple of years ago, they claimed that Gen Zs, Gen Zs are those who would be about in their teens or early twenties today, they are twice as likely as the older generations to, be, to declare themselves atheists in the States. And the major factor, the major barrier to faith in God for them is that they have a really hard time believing that a good God would allow so much suffering and evil in this world. This has been a major barrier to people putting their faith and believing in God for centuries. Maybe we struggle with it too. Maybe like Job, we feel that our lives are unfair. That what we have been going through doesn't make sense. Maybe you've stood and looked up in the sky and asked, God, why is this happening? And so like so many others, we could walk away from God. We could walk away and say, no, this proves that God doesn't exist. But that wouldn't really fix anything, would it? Because we would still be suffering, but we would be suffering without God. Job, he wasn't going to do that. Job feared 
God. He had that deep reverence and respect for God. He had his faith in God. And so instead of walking away from God because of this problem of suffering, he brought this problem to God. Well, that's what he wanted to do. He wanted to confront God with all the evidence in his life and ask him, God, what's going on? Why is this happening? What have I done to deserve this? I think this is why he asked in verse 2, how can a mortal be righteous before God? Job wanted an opportunity to appeal his case before God. He wanted to be vindicated. He wanted to be declared innocent. He wanted his relationship with God restored. But that seemed impossible. So verse 3 said, Though one wished to dispute with him, he could not answer him one time out of a thousand. Job just couldn't go up to God and confront God with this issue, just like he did with his three friends. He couldn't argue with God like he had argued with his three friends over these 24 chapters in this book. Why not? What were the barriers that would stop Job from coming before God and and arguing his case and, and, and asking for an answer? Well, the first reason is because of God's inscrutable wisdom. His wisdom is profound, he says in verse 4. God's wisdom is so deep that it's beyond us. We can't always just work it out in our heads. This is what Paul wrote in Romans chapter 11. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom of, and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. We'll never truly understand everything that God does. It's always going to blow our minds. And so instead of judging God, we need to trust Him. That what He says is right, even if we can't understand it. Even if we can't work it out. That's where Job will eventually get to by the end of this book. But just now, God's superior wisdom just seems like a barrier to Job getting the answers that he needs, be able to have his case heard. Second barrier was God's invincible power. His power is vast, Job said in verse 4. Job demonstrated this by describing God's sovereign power over this, this world. Verse 5 to 7, he, he moves mountains without their, without their knowing it. He shakes the earth from its place. He speaks to the sun and it doesn't shine. All demonstrations of God's invincible power over this world. The mountains can't resist him. The earth can't stand in his presence. The sun can't shine without his permission. God is in charge of all of that. 
Job even said this in verse 13. The cohorts of Rahab cowered at his feet. Not, people aren't very sure about exactly what that means. They probably think it's a, a mythological monster that Job is referring to. A kind of common idea that people were thinking about in those days. How even that has to submit to God. Now for us, as I've been singing this morning in our, in our worship time, it's such a comfort to know that God is more powerful and that, that nobody can oppose Him. We celebrate that our God is greater than every other power in this world. But for Job at this moment in time, it was not a comfort to him. Instead he saw it as a threat. Who has resisted him and come out unscathed, he said. God is so powerful that even if John got a chance to speak with him, Job imagined it would just be blown away by him. Things would just have got worse. Verse 16, even if I summoned him and he responded, I do not believe that he would give me a hearing. He would crush me with a storm. And multiply my wounds for no reason. If God is so powerful that nobody can oppose Him, not even creation itself can stand up against Him, then what chance do I have of confronting God with the injustice of my situation? How can I stand before such a powerful Thirdly, this seemed impossible because God is invisible. If you've ever watched Star Trek, anybody a a Trekkie here? No? The Klingons, they have a cloaking device. That means that they can make their ships invisible and undetectable. Be a great resource to have in a battle, wouldn't it? Because how can anybody shoot you if they can't see you? How can they attack you if you're invisible to them? Well, that's how Job felt about God. Verse 11, when he passes me, I cannot see him. When he goes by, I cannot perceive him. How can you plead your case with someone you cannot see? How can you dispute with them when you can't look them in the eye? But even if Job could guarantee God's presence... He was sure it would still be an impossible case to win. Look at verse 14. How can I find words to argue with him? Though I were innocent, I could not answer him. I could only plead with my judge for mercy. Job imagined he would just be so overwhelmed by God's presence that his words would fail him. His eloquence would disappear and he would just end up falling in his face and asking for mercy. He's even afraid that in in God's holy presence that he'd say all the wrong things. He'd get so tongue-tied that he would actually say things that he shouldn't say. Even if I were innocent, my mouth would condemn me. So these were the barriers that Job felt were there so that He couldn't bring his case before God. So what was Job going to do? His pain and his suffering seemed to condemn him. 
And yet he couldn't plead his case before God. He couldn't prove his innocence before him. What should we do with the whole problem of pain and suffering? What should we do when we feel wrongly attacked or wrongly accused or badly treated? If we can't and shouldn't put God on trial, then what can we do? Well, to conclude this chapter, Job he, he looked at two options and he ruled them out. And then he expressed his longing for a final answer. First of all, he said, verse 27, that because life is so short, that maybe he should just cheer himself up. I will forget my complaint. I will change my expression and smile. That's the solution of many today. They've ever been told to cheer up. That terrible phrase, cheer up at night, never happened, even though maybe it has already happened. Snap out of it. Just enjoy life. But we can't just turn a blind eye to all of the struggles and suffering in this world. We may be able to push our emotions down for a while, but that doesn't mean they'll go away. Job said, verse 28, I still dread all my suffering, for I know that you will not hold me innocent. Pretending that everything is okay might work for a little while, but it just stores up problems for the future. Eventually we have to face reality. Eventually we have to be real with what we're going through. Or maybe if he couldn't declare himself innocent, maybe he could just wash himself clean. Job knew that wouldn't work either. Verse 30, even if I wash myself with soap and my hands with washing soda. We all got very uh, very, uh, good at doing that during COVID, didn't we? We all had to wash our hands again and again. You would plunge me into a slime pit so that even my clothes would detest me. If he tried to clean himself up, then sooner or later, something would come along and he'd just be messed up all over again from this world. He'd be right back where he started. And it wouldn't work. Sorting out our lives, turning over a new leaf, reinventing ourselves might work for a while, but until the next thing comes along or the next tragedy, and then we're right back to where we started. So Job knew that he couldn't handle this on his own. He couldn't vindicate himself. He couldn't just cheer himself up. And he couldn't just clean himself up. And so he ended this chapter with a longing. With a desperate cry. A desperate call for someone to come and help. Look at verse 33. If only there was someone to arbitrate between us. To lay his hand on us both. Someone to remove God's rod from me. So that his terror would frighten me no more. Job longed for a mediator. 
Someone who could act as an umpire. A go-between. Someone who could bring God and him together and settle this dispute. Resolve their issues and bring reconciliation again. This was his desperate hope. But really interestingly, as this argument continued, this desperate hope strengthened into a strong and deep conviction. So by chapter 16, he says this, Even now, my witness is in heaven. My advocate is on high. My intercessor is my friend, as my eyes pour out tears to God. On behalf of a man, he pleads with God, as a man pleads for his friend. Job believed there was a mediator in heaven for him. But Job didn't know the full identity of that person. But praise God, we do. For there is one God and one mediator between God and man. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all men. That's the answer that Job needed. And that's the answer that we need today. Someone who can stand in God's holy presence, who unlike Job, will not be silenced by God's overwhelming wisdom and power. But also someone who has lived our life. Who can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Who understands our pain. Who has suffered our agony. Who has died our death. Who's that person? Well, of course, it's none other but Jesus. The one who is fully God and fully man. The one who has bridged the gap between God and man. When he died on the cross, when he paid the price of our sins, when he set us free from our condemnation, when he declared us innocent in God's sight. And the one who is raised again and is now seated at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. This is the ultimate answer to the pain and the suffering that we go through, folks. It's not to think like Job's friends that we can control our experiences through our behaviour. Just be good and good things will happen to you. Not to conclude like so many other people that God doesn't exist. That suffering is just the, the destiny in this, our destiny in this meaningless and empty world. Not to do what Job was tempted to do here. To put God on trial and accuse Him of injustice and try and defend ourselves. But the answer that we need is just to look to the cross of Jesus. 
where God's love and God's justice perfectly meet. To put our trust in the one who loved us and gave himself for us. To receive his forgiveness and grace so that we know that we've been declared righteous, innocent, perfect in God's sight. To depend on him completely in every situation. Knowing that he is always with us. That he is holding on to us. That nothing can separate us from his love. That he's always interceding for us. And that one day he will bring us safely home where he will wipe away every tear from our eyes. For the old things will have passed away and behold all things will become new.